0: Perhaps unsurprisingly, the movie Elvis tells the life story of Elvis Presley, one of the most famous musicians of the 20th century. That was the actor who plays Presley, Austin Butler, performing his rendition of the Elvis song, Baby, Let's Play House.
1: house
0: The soundtrack for the movie features covers of classics by the movie stars, like We Just Heard, but it also includes songs inspired by Elvis from today's popular artists. This is Tupelo Shuffle by Sway Lee and Diplo. It's named after Tupelo, Mississippi, where Elvis was born. For today's edition of the 1A Record Club, we're talking about the soundtrack for the new movie Elvis and digging into Presley's legacy with our guests and you.
2: Elvis was not the king of rock and roll. Elvis received that moniker through the absurdity of racism and white supremacy in America.
0: We'll hear more from you throughout the hour, as well as a music journalist and historian, I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to have your questions answered on future shows, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation with eight-time Grammy Award-winning music producer Dave Cobb. He's worked with musicians including Brandy Carlile and Chris Stapleton. He is also the music producer for the film Elvis, and he joins us from Savannah, Georgia. Hi, Dave. Welcome to One A.
1: Hey, great to be on the show. I'm always a big fan of you guys. This is awesome. That's
0: great to hear. Um, Because I have a lot of questions for you. Um, (laughs) So there's two different kinds of songs on this soundtrack, right? There are those that are performances by Elvis. And then there are covers of Elvis songs that were done by modern artists. I wonder what were the instructions that you gave to musicians? If when they were going to cover an Elvis song, what did you tell them?
1: I, well, I did all the stuff that was, you know, kind of the recreation of the original tracks, aside from uh, Stevie Nicks and and, and uh, Chris Isaac, Isaac. but uh, but but mainly, you know, we wanted to be as authentic as possible, so we went to, you know, every means to have all the accurate recording uh, equipment they would have done, they, uh, they would have had at the time. We also set up in a room, played live together. So when you hear Austin sing, you know, he's singing live and the band is playing completely live and people are reactionary and there's bleed and there's all the great stuff that made those old records happen. But also I cast it in a way that... I thought every musician that was going to come in would be appreciative of this kind of music and and celebrate it and know it and kind of have grown up with it. So you really feel the authenticity because these people lived this music their whole life and came in a room and recorded it live together the old way.
0: Let's listen to a little more music. Uh, This is Trouble, and we will hear the Elvis Presley original first and then transition to the new movie version, which is sung by the movie star Austin Butler. But if you're gonna start a rumble, don't you try at all we go down
2: to evil. My little angel's misery.
3: Well, I'm evil, so don't you mess around
0: with me. So, look, we're broadcast news. I know there's a lot that you can do uh, uh, through audio engineering. Did you use any of the audio engineering tricks uh, to make Butler's voice sound like Presley's?
1: You know, uh, he actually recorded some in in Nashville, RCA Studio A. He also did some in Australia while he was filming. So I think before the vocals were finished on this record, he spent a good bit of time really researching Elvis, you know, probably to the ump degree, and I think... For two years, that's all he listened to was Elvis. So by the time he sang these vocals, he, he he's got about as close as you could possibly uh, go. But he was singing in the period of correct microphones and and doing it completely the way it would have been done. You know, if you see that famous Elvis mic, you've seen, you know, in pictures he, he's using one of those live. You know, and it's, it's it feels like a live show. We tried to create that environment in the studio. So when he's is singing, you know, a good bit of this, he's reacting to the band. And I think that's, that's, you can't really emulate that the other way around. So, yeah, he's, he spent his time doing the research, and, and the band did too.
0: So you've mentioned a couple times that you recorded a lot of the music in that same RCA record studio uh, where Elvis and many, many others recorded music and used at least some of the original recording equipment that Elvis did, the, the microphone at least, right? What difference does that make? Why is that important?
1: I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, I'm not a photographer, but I know lenses have a lot to do with making photography look accurate. You know, maybe if you used a camera from the, you know, turn of the century, you might get a closer representation of what things look like then. So I think we did the same thing in recording. And uh, we actually were... Really fortunate enough to to be able to bug the Country Music Hall of Fame, who had some of the actual uh, tape machines they used on Elvis records, and we, we bought those in. Uh, the one that was used for Heartbreak Hotel, we 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 bought it in and used it on, on that. So I mean, there's there's some direct links to Elvis there and with the equipment. And um, so we in the in the rest that we didn't have direct links, we had the exact equipment, um, just maybe not the one he used, but the exact same year, exact same piece of equipment. So we we really. You know, and we recorded the tape. It's all to analog tape, too. Hmm. So it's not it's not something that's, um, you know, done the modern way. It's done completely accurately to the the, the, the time periods so we were going. And we would jump different time periods, too. There would be yeah. 50s Elvis, early 60s Elvis, late 60s Elvis. And and, and so we were switching gears a lot. And, and you know, when we went sw- switched to the 60s stuff, we changed the equipment for that, too. So we really went out of our way to be as authentic as uh, as possible, you know.
0: It's the 1A Record Club. We're talking to Grammy winning music producer Dave Cobb about his work on the soundtrack for the new movie, Elvis. Um, a, a former American Idol contestant Les Green took on the role of Little Richard for the film. Here's Green's rendition of the song Tutti Frutti from Little Richard. That song was also covered by Elvis. <laughs> People are talking all about uh, Austin Butler recreating Presley, but that's an amazing recreation of the sound of Little Richard singing Tutti Frutti there. Elvis is often called the king of rock and roll. A lot of his sound originated from black artists like Little Richard. I wonder how you grappled with the idea of honoring those black artists who really inspired, not only inspired Elvis, but provided a lot of the music that he sang.
1: Well, I think you know the initial conversation I had with Baz Luhrmann, the director, was exactly that, and, and acknowledging where Elvis, how he became Elvis, and the music that influenced him, and the music that you know made him who he was. So I think that was the original conversation was to bring as much of the church, as much as the African American uh, soul music, the the gospel music. Uh, the jazz, everything into this record. I, I think that was a huge part of this soundtrack, and 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 I think that was acknowledged from day one. So there, there's quite a bit of choir in the movie, and there's quite a bit of choir reacting on the soundtrack. So we, that was always something that was hugely important to to Elvis too. I think you can see in the way Elvis sang. I mean, he was celebrating you know African American music his whole life. So I think it's a beautiful thing.
0: Dave Cobb is the music producer for the new movie Elvis. Dave, thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Anytime. Thank you.
0: One listener tweets this. I've never been a fan of Elvis simply because he was called the king of rock and roll when he stole his material from black artists. At least the Beatles were honest about their influences and talked about who and where they learned their style. On that note, let's listen to the single Vegas. It was done by Doja Cat and released early in May. There, Doja Cat samples Big Mama Thornton's 1952 song, Hound Dog. Uh, Big Mama Thornton was one of many black artists whose songs were covered later by Elvis Presley. We'll get more of that story. First, though, let's introduce our guest for the rest of this conversation. Dr. Tammy Kernodal is a distinguished professor of musicology at Miami University in Ohio. Hi there, Tammy. Hello. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. Tammy, I hope we can start with that song, Hound Dog. It has a very long history. What do you make of Doja Cat's cover of it? I actually love it.
2: Um, when I first heard the song, it, it really struck me, uh, as specifically because Big Mama Thornton's um, Voice is sampled, but also I think it really speaks to the timelessness of that original recording. Um, The fact that the, the shuffle rhythm and the energy and the grit and the funk that she brought to that particular song was easily translated into our current hip hop genre by different artists.
0: A lot of people may be just learning that Hound Dog was not an original that was first sung by Elvis. Can you tell us a little bit about Big Mama Thornton and who she was?
2: So Big Mama Thornton is uh one of a few uh blues women who emerge um after World War II as a part of what was becoming an urban blues trend that was centered around the migration, the black migration, uh, in urban cities in the North and the West during that period in time. She was a harmonica player. She was a drummer. Uh, but most people know her as a singer. Um, and Hound Dog was really one of her first big hits. Um, it was not a song written by her. It was actually written by a songwriting team, uh, Lieber and Stoller. Uh, but her interpretation of it, um, uh, you know, just really, uh, anchored her to what was the sound of urbanity and modernism in post-war black
0: America. So actually, Hound Dog shows up twice more on the new Elvis soundtrack. The first version is from the actress who plays Big Mama Thornton in the movie. The second is by Austin Butler, who plays Elvis.
1: You
2: ain't nothing but a hound dog.
0: So Tammy, what do you when you hear both of those side by side? Uh, what what strikes what, what strikes you there?
2: What really strikes me is the rhythm. Um, You know, when you listen to Big Mama Thornton, that that real edgy shuffle rhythm was so much a part of the DNA of rhythm and blues and urban blues during that period in time. And what you have is Elvis really softening that shuffle rhythm and really aligning it more so with a type of country swing um, that was marketed as rockabilly. Um, You know, he, he in some ways sanitizes it. He reinterprets it um, uh, outside of that real hard, edgy sound that we get with Big Mama Thornton. His version is actually also based on someone else's reinterpretation of that song. So it comes from him hearing another white group who interpreted that song. So it's translated, you know, twice
0: before he gets to it. We're joined now by Kia Turner, who's becoming a record club regular. She's a freelance music journalist and critic. Hi, Kia. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. We've been listening to different versions of Hound Dog going back to Big Mama Thornton's. That was one of many Elvis songs that were originally recorded by Black artists. Kia, this is something that's going to come up again and again and again, was whether or not Um, all that Elvis owed to black artists for his success is given its due credit. What do you think?
3: Um, you know, it's a loaded question and answer, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, black music as a whole in this country has had a very complicated relationship with the audiences that love it, um, and the people who, in the audience who may love the music but may not love the people behind it, um... I think Elvis is a perfect example of someone who unfortunately was a product of their environment, him being from Memphis, him being from the South, you know, that Mississippi Delta blues, it was around him. He couldn't escape it. That gospel, that soul, that blues, he couldn't escape it. But at the same time, at the end of the day, he is a white male um, living in a time where we know there was a lot of racial um, bias. So I think that when it comes down to Elvis, he's a product of his environment, sure. Um, That doesn't give him any like victimhood. But at the same time though, we can't fault him for doing what a lot of white artists were doing at that time.
0: Did he do enough though, to credit the black artists who helped him to become successful? Um, should he have done more when it came to either royalties or or talking about them in interviews, featuring them, promoting those artists? What do you think, yeah?
3: Um, No, I don't think he did enough, to be honest with you. It's almost like if someone wants to be like, let's say, a pop star, right? And maybe they're doing certain dance moves or, you know, performance styles that are attributed to, you know, Black music icons like Janet Jackson or Beyonce, right? Obviously, their first go-to is like, oh, yeah, I love Janet. Oh, yeah, I love Beyonce. But it's like, uh, okay, you know, like so I think it was kind of the same with Elvis. It's like, yeah, BB King, yeah, little Richard, yeah, Big Mama Thornton, sure. But I don't think the actual love and adoration and respect, I think that's the main important thing. It's like, yeah, sure, you can speak their names, but where's the respect? Where's the accountability? Um, as far as giving them their right credit. They get so often overlooked because of the image and the myth around Elvis, uh, which has a lot to do with the team he had around him, which of course is shown in the movie, um, but also has to do a lot with media at that time and how they were highlighting Elvis. You know, He was looked at as, oh my God, look at the dance moves he's doing when there were black artists doing the exact same stuff that he was getting it from. Um, so it wasn't just Elvis by himself. It was a whole team, a whole machine behind it. Um, in a lot of ways, Elvis
0: was a pawn, unfortunately. So um, on that note, uh, let's listen to John in Raleigh, North Carolina.
2: I am a big blues fan and I
3: wanted to talk a little bit about Arthur Big Boy Crudup, who wrote That's
2: All Right Now, Mama. That's all right for you. That's
0: all right now, Mama.
2: Which was Elvis's first big
3: hit. Arthur Big Boy Crudup ended up on the eastern shore of Virginia, which is where I'm from. I'd just like to hear a little bit about the story. I know that he eventually did get some royalties for that song, but it was like 20 or 25 years later uh, after a, a lot of effort.
2: The life you live inside now, women beat it down for you, that's all right.
0: We just heard the first recording of That's Alright from nineteen forty-four. Elvis released his version of that song a decade later. Grammy-winning musician Gary Clark Jr. played Big Boy up in the movie Elvis and lent his song, his voice to the new song Tupelo Shuffle. That's alright, Mama. That's alright, So Tammy, going back to John's question, did Big Boy Crudup eventually get royalties? Yes, he did.
2: Um, in the in the late '60s, early '70s, um, blues enthusiasts began to help artists like Quetta and others. Who had not received, you know, proper compensation? They began to advocate for them, and he he received ten thousand uh, dollars in royalties before he died. Now he received also a larger judgment for uh, back royalty payments. It's never, it's not been clear, or I haven't really been able to really um, get any definitive information about whether his family actually received those back payments. What we do know is now that those copyrights uh, do belong in... with the family and so they do benefit from that music now you know but this was a this was a um a phenomenon in the late 60s and 70s when uh, actually cut and and big mama thornton and many of those individuals who influenced elvis that were still living uh went through a renaissance
0: you know these enthusiasts rediscovered them we continue our discussion of the movie elvis in just a moment But remember, to have your questions answered on future shows or to let us know what you think, you can tweet us. It's at 1A. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Now, Tammy, I understand that you actually used to sing and even play guitar to Elvis songs when you were little.
2: Yes, I I grew up in the South. and, And so I very much identified with that kind of the blend in Elvis's music. And growing up in the 70s, you know, coming of age in the 70s, you know, I identified with him as much as I did the Jackson 5, the Stevie Wonder, you know, and gospel artists like, you know, the Hawkins singers and things.
0: How old were you when you found out that the that music was actually originally black music? Um,
2: I would say that that didn't occur to me until I got to college and really started to, um, to, to study black music in any concentrated way. Um, I didn't hear Big Mama Thornton's, um, Hound Dog until I was in college. Um, so I I was completely lost on the fact that his sound was, was really rooted in him drawing
0: these different elements from these different black artists. Which meant the the film um, highlights that that was because of his love for this music. Um, The soundtrack includes a lot of new music as well from people like Casey Musgraves, Eminem, Jack White, Denzel Curry, Jasmine Sullivan, a lot of big names. Uh, Here's Tame Impala's remix of the Elvis song, Edge of Reality. Don't waste your time, you're gonna get left behind. Better get your foot together, see what's going on. Don't waste your time. Kia, how often do we see this stellar of a lineup come together to make a soundtrack for a movie?
3: Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't usually get those big, you know, like monster soundtracks anymore. Um, but while he's really good at that. Um, Even with like his previous projects, uh, he loves to put together an immersive experience on film and uh, via music, you know, with the soundtrack. But it's exciting to hear like so many of the new generation, like with Tame Impala and Doja Cat, Jeff Sullivan, kind of on like these remixed editions or remakes of uh these Classics that also Elvis remade as well, so it's exciting.
0: So, what's your review of the soundtrack as a whole? Listening to it beginning to end, what did you think? <laughs> um,
3: you know, there's some very like bright moments. Like, I love the uh remakes of Fruity Tootie and uh Hound Dog on the soundtrack. Um, I love Doja Cat's Vegas, uh, even though it's more of an original song. I love Jasmine's song. Um, there are some pretty like really bright moments on here. I think the EDM kind of dance mixes of Elvis kind of, I think at that point, we're kind of putting him into something that we don't. Um, I don't think I, anyone needs an EDM mix of an Elvis Presley song. Personally, I don't really we
0: need that. <laughs> well, let's say, you mentioned Jasmine Sullivan's rendition of the gospel tune, originally a spiritual. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Let's take a listen to it. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, yeah. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. So, Tammy, that song was featured in Elvis' 1968 televised comeback special. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the song itself? Because that is an old song. Yes, um as you said,
2: it is it is a negro spiritual um coming out of the slave experience um in America and it really shows how, you know, there is a recycling. Um, that happens as each generation uh, deals with uh, the music as an artifact and 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 centers it in its experience. So you know it it moves from that slave experience into the emancipation experience as part of the worship music that. Um, it, Emanated out of the Black Southern experience, right? Um, But it also became part of the language of new post-slavery America as singers like the Fist Jubilee singers um, reconceptualized that in a Eurocentric form and began to perform it on concert stages in America and Europe, right? So it has a very long history and it's a very poignant uh, song that speaks to, you know, this atmosphere Absence of longing and belonging, um, and and a sense of not having identity, right? And I think it really um, embodied who Elvis was after a certain period in time, and the loss of consciousness and humanity, and the absence of music after uh, the real. S- core aspects of his music after a point in time. And so, you know, it gets recycled into Black gospel traditions. It's recorded over and over. It's a song that you can still hear
0: sometimes in Black churches throughout America. I, Kia, walk me through um, the impact of Elvis singing a song like this, a song that was originally created and sung by enslaved African-Americans. How am I as a 2022 person to understand the context of this?
3: Uh, That's actually a really good question. Um, I think it depends on if you're a 2022 person, are we talking about like the younger generation, like people who maybe weren't around then? I mean, because realistically the kids now are I mean, I
0: wasn't around when he did his 1968 TV special (laughs) and I'm not younger.
3: (laughs) Okay, so if if we're going like that, right, so, I mean, it's all about how you take on the music. Obviously, as we've seen with Elvis, a lot of his adaptations were him almost taking, and I hate to say this, because it's not to take anything away from him. He's a great musician in his own right, right? But a lot of his adaptations of these Negro spirituals, a lot of his adaptations of these blues songs, um, of these early, you know, rock gospel songs, a lot of it was more to be popularized. So it was to change, you know, almost the instrumentation and how it sounded and almost give it like a different kind of, I don't know, feeling for his audience per se, Um, which a lot of artists do when they're trying to remake a song, or at least they try to, is to adapt, you know, adapt it to their own way. I think, unfortunately, though, knowing his track record and the machine around him um, and how they treated the Black artists that he worked with or remade their music with um, I think it's it's interesting to say the least of why he chose those songs. I can imagine he probably heard that growing up, but still, it's just uh, um, I don't want to say distasteful, but it can kind of come off that way in a bit. Like these it's were tough, songs, right? That, yeah, yeah. Like these are songs that led our people through very very rough times, and to take it and be like yeah, let me shake my hips to it. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to say the least, but also understanding that it was to push a machine at the end of the day.
0: I do think um, that uh, the movie especially is bringing some new attention. And I I think you mentioned this before, Tammy, to some artists who who don't get the attention they deserve, I think. Um, and on that note, I want to listen to the song Strange Things Are Happening Every Day. This was first uh, uh, recorded in 1944 by Sister Rosetta Tharp probably one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Um, the new soundtrack version is by Yola, who plays Tharp in the film.
2: There are strange things happening every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Yes, there are strange things happening every day. Well, let me tell you something.
0: So, Tammy, who was Sister Rosetta Tharp?
2: So, Sister Rosetta Tharp was an instrumentalist and singer who came out of the Pentecostal church. Um, she earned her uh, notoriety first working what we call the gospel highway. Uh, and what, what made her um, very unique at her time was... Her use of the guitar, um, the guitar was an extension of her sound identity. Uh, but she really came to national prominence in 1938 when she was featured um, in John Hammond's famous concert from spirituals uh, to swing, Carnegie Hall. And so she's one of the artists who is is essential in taking black gospel traditions from the insularity of the black church and into the secular realm. So she performed at um, you know, Cafe Society, uh, the Notorious Nightclub in the 1930s, also the Apollo Theater. So she had, you know, she really embodied uh, the fluidity that, um, you know, underscores black music in terms of the sacred and the secular. Um, mm. Had a number of big hits, was the first big megastar of gospel, you know, um, but also really grounded her music in, you know, elements that oftentimes pointed her sound away from Gospels. So th- I love this particular song because it is oftentimes viewed by historians as one of the songs that provides a blueprint for rock and roll. Right. Yeah. Um, this along with Rocket 88. Um, and so, you know, it 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 shows how. You know, women were a part of an aesthetic that
0: we associate largely with masculinity. That's true. So, um, Kia, it looks like this comment is for you. Stylo tweets this. Funny your panelist mentioned EDM, which is doing in mass what Elvis did in taking black music and repackaging it with white faces. Elvis is not the king of rock and roll and we as a nation haven't learned. What's your response?
3: Wow. Okay. They said that way more, you know, (laughs) Um, I agree. I mean, you know, right now there's a really big resurgence with house and, you know, like club music specifically with like artists like Drake and Beyonce. Um, And if you know anything about the history of that, you would know that EDM derives from house music, um, which derives from Disco, which draws from funk and gospel, so that's the amazing thing about black music, right? It all kind of is like a house, and it's like one parent leads to the next parent. Um, but they're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, I've, uh, there was a documentary I was watching. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I'm sorry. I'm so I'm really sorry I'm about good. that. But uh, there was a documentary I watched where they discussed how, like you know, black music is the leading like thread of culture. Um, However, the artists that make this music, that lead the culture, they're often forgotten or they're often overlooked or it's stolen from them. And I hate to say stolen, but that's kind of how it feels it feels very much like we create this art whether it's from our pain or from our struggles or from our sadness our grief whatever it is our joy even we create this music and so often it's like oh this is really great let me take this and then add a formula to it um and unfortunately elvis and edm are just perfect examples of that
0: so EDM for our listeners, if you don't know, is electronic dance music. It's also known as club music. And some of the most famous um, EDM musicians are are white dudes like Skrillex. Um, I, and I'm going to ask you both the same question, and I'll give you about a minute and a half to do it. <laughs> Elvis died at 42 in 1977, and 45 years later, Tammy, you first. What lessons do you think the music industry and and fans of music, pop music can take from elvis's career
2: well i think elvis's career shows us about matt teaches us a lesson about mass commodification and branding you know um he was one of the first big artists to achieve that but also i think it, it he can provide us a lesson a lens into understanding the loss of agency um within that that culture of commodification. Um, we can draw a through line, uh, from Elvis to Michael Jackson, to Whitney Houston, to Prince, um, and, and just how a sound, a, a persona, a brand, uh, can get separated from humanity the mm. hum- humanity of a person yeah. um and then that can create uh all of these historical narratives some that have merit and some who
0: that don't yeah and in in 30 to 60 seconds kia what do you think how do we understand his his career
3: no i think tammy said it perfectly she hit it right on the head i think that you know I keep saying it throughout the whole like conversation but Elvis really was unfortunately a machine and he was a part of a specific formula of like just gatekeepers and the power makers you know over him and unfortunately we've seen that too often with not just black artists but just with artists in general when they reach a certain level of stardom and uh fame so yeah Tammy hit it on the head perfectly
0: Kia Turner, freelance music journalist and critic. Tammy Kurnodal is a distinguished professor of musicology at Miami University in Ohio. Thanks so much to both of you. This was the latest conversation of the 1A Record Club. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.